Despite losing a daughter and despite Brigham Young breathing down his neck, Jim Bridger still had to earn a living. Enter in Uncle Sam, or at least the Army Corps of Topographical Engineers. A Captain Howard Stansbury and his 16-man expedition of cartographers, illustrators, scientists, and soldiers were tasked with surveying the Great Salt Lake, evaluating the Mormon and Oregon trails, and hopefully finding a likely route for a transcontinental railroad. A daunting task that would need a capable guide. And who more qualified than Jim Bridger? After all, he had been roaming these quote-unquote unexplored areas for over the past 25 years. All in all, it was a very frustrating experience for Bridger, babysitting these wet-behind-the-ears pilgrims in such a fashion. Not only was he mad at himself for taking the job, but he swore that he would never guide for the army again. An oath that wouldn't last very long as Jim would once more accompany Stansbury in the fall of 1850, this time to another possible railroad crossing over the Continental Divide now known as Bridger's Pass, about 20 miles southwest of Rawlins, Wyoming. This was a trip full of memories for Bridger. One evening, they camped just two miles from the spot his longtime friend, Henry Frab, fell to the Lakota. And the following day, they came to where Jim's current business partner, Vasquez, along with 14 other traders, were once in an hours-long battle with the same tribe. Needless to say, Jim ordered the men to keep their rifles handy. And sure enough, as they pressed east, not far from Cheyenne Pass, Bridger spotted the natives tracking them. And what I'm about to recount, in my opinion, shows how effective Bridger was at keeping his scalp all those years. He could size up a situation, and he knew when to run, when to make a stand, when to fight, and when to talk. This was a time for talking. Bridger the Diplomat. By the way, this is part four in the Jim Bridger series. Link in the show notes for the previous three installments. Or you can check them all out at patreon.com forward slash wildwestextra ad-free along with the entire library of the Wild West extravaganza, including many episodes no longer available to the public. We've arrived at the halfway point in Bridger's life. He was 46 years old in 1850, with a career as both a fur trapper and trader now behind him. Offering up his services to the Army and anybody else who needed guidance, Jim once more found himself riding out to meet a war party of hostiles, something he had done many times in the past, diffusing an already tense situation. Then again, it's also how he got a couple of arrows in the back and nearly lost his life. These Lakota knew Bridger, for a fact. They respected the blanket chief, and perhaps they even feared him a bit. Of course, none of that would stop them from killing Jim deader in hell if they got a chance. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. <laughs> Noticing that the warriors were keeping their distance, Jim shouldered his rifle and approached, alone and on foot, signing for the Lakota to come out and talk as he neared. They did, and as it turned out, they were Oglala and Cheyenne. Bridger invited them to camp, and here they came a-galloping, shaking hands all around and looking to trade. After doing a little business, Jim then began entertaining his guests. Using a mixture of what Lakota and Cheyenne he knew, coupled with sign, Jim took to telling his legendary stories, and in no time flat, these hardened warriors of the prairie were doubled over in laughter. Given a different scout, or even a different approach, who knows? Things could have turned out much differently. The expedition soon reached Fort Laramie, and Bridger's job was done. At least for this go-around, and the trail they had just blazed, one known by the mountaineers for decades and the indigenous for centuries, would now be dubbed the Overland Trail. 
About a year later, Jim would return to Fort Laramie to attend the Horse Creek Treaty, the largest assembly of Native Americans up to that point, if I'm not mistaken, in all of recorded history. Among the tribes in attendance were the Lakota, Cheyenne, Crow, Hadasta, Mandan, Arikara, Arapaho, and the Shoshone, which is why Bridger was there. He was looking out for the interest of his in-laws, the Shoshone, and escorting Chief Washaki himself. In the summer of 1852, Bridger would send Felix and Mary Josephine to St. Louis in order for them to be enrolled in Catholic school. Guess he reckoned on this being a much safer way for his children to receive an education. And this is also about the time that the problem with the Mormons all came to a head, so I'm sure he was looking to keep them clear of potential harm. Bridger would eventually move his entire family to Westport, Missouri, where Kansas City now stands. And in the winter of 1853, he sent Virginia to join her siblings at school in St. Louis as he traveled to D.C. with Broken Hand Fitzpatrick. And we already discussed how that ended. With Fort Bridger out of the picture, Jim and Vasquez planned a new trading post along the Santa Fe Trail, and they both bought land outside of Westport. Financially, they did all right. Hell, Jim even bought a mercantile store, selling all manner of goods to travelers and citizens alike. Now, this business appears to have been located at 504 Westport Road, and per kchistory.org, it is possibly the oldest still extant building in Kansas City. A Google search shows that it's now home of Bridger's Westport, the number one hip-hop club in Kansas City, per their website. So that's kind of cool. A building that was once owned by Jim Bridger is still around, and you can go there and get your bump and grind on. In 1856, Bridger was able to send a fourth child, John, aged four, to St. Louis for schooling, and he took a job himself as a guide for the eccentric Irish adventurer, Sir St. George Gore, the eighth baronet of Gore Manor in Northern Ireland. Which, once again, I'm not sure what it means, but it sounds rich as hell. And man, what a piece of work this Gore guy was. Dude set out, Bridger as his guide, with 40 servants. Cooks, stewards, wine servers, taxidermists, secretaries, even people who just made fancy special flies for his fishing rigs. 170 horses, oxen, and mules pulled 21 carts and six wagons full of three tons worth of equipment. Ammunition, a giant tent, chairs, the entire leather-bound works of Shakespeare, a bathtub, and an assortment of expensive greyhounds and foxhounds. Hell, one of the wagons carried nothing but guns. Gotta wonder what Bridger must have thought especially considering that the baronet would sleep till noon every day. Sadly, during this trip, Jim would receive news that his son John had passed away in St. Charles of dysentery, and as such, Bridger cut the job short to return home to his remaining family. Remember, they're living in Westport while Bridger is spending the majority of his time out west. That summer of 1855, Jim returned to scouting for Gore. He was doing his level best to kill every animal he could find, just for the sake of killing some estimates put the number of buffalo slaughtered by the Irishmen at an astounding 30,000, along with thousands of deer, elk, and over 100 grizzlies. His guides would either stampede the buffalo directly in front of Gore, or he'd just post up on a hill and wantonly drop one after another after another. So much so that an Indian agent complained to the government, but unfortunately no action was taken, and Gore would not return home to the Emerald Isle until 1857. Following this job, Bridger would go to work guiding for the nation's leading geologist, Ferdinand Hayden, and topographer, Governor K. Warren, exploring the Yellowstone River and taking important geological samples and specimens. And other than Warren and Hayden nearly coming to blows, everything went swimmingly. 
Not so much down Utah way, however. Old Brigham Young was still down there in Salt Lake City, crazy as ever, making his holy proclamations and ruling like a theocrat. Actions that caused President Buchanan to go ahead and appoint a non-Mormon to the position of Utah Territory Governor. He knew Young would never go for this, so the new governor, Alfred Cumming, was to be escorted by the by-God U.S. military, which was guided by none other than my friend and yours, Jim Bridger. Now, I don't want to venture too far into the Utah War, because to be honest, I'm not very well versed on the subject. Uh, I will say that I do sympathize with the Church of Latter-day Saints and their desire to separate themselves from society and live their lives as they see fit. Boy, do I. I also like that Brigham Young was recorded as saying, I love the government and the Constitution of the United States, but I do not love the damn rascals that administer the government. Amen, brother. I think the Mormons were legit persecuted for their religious beliefs. Also worth considering that the nation, even in the 1850s, was on the brink of war over the issue of slavery. The U.S. was truly a divided nation, even before the war between the states. But the one thing that everybody could agree on was hating the Mormons. So yeah, I get it. They were the easy choice. Not to say that Brigham Young was an innocent little altar boy. He was preaching a lot of seditious stuff and, as I said before, attempted to set up a theocracy. Religious beliefs are one thing, but we should all be free to worship as we see fit. A theocracy, however, would see a certain religion forced upon the populace. And since rulers like Brigham Young, for example, are considered chosen by God, you can't question their edicts because that would be just like doubting the Lord Almighty himself. I'm not a big fan of legislating morality. And turns out neither is the Bill of Rights or the entire history of mankind. It generally never ends well. Take the Mountain Meadow Massacre, for example, which sure as hell did not help Brigham Young's cause. In mid-September 1857, as Bridger was still guiding the first of the federal troops to Utah, members of a Mormon militia attacked and killed over 120 men, women, and children belonging to a passing wagon train. Only the kids under the age of seven were spared. I think 17 in total. Now, there's no proof that I'm aware of linking Brigham Young to this massacre, officially, but even if he didn't order it, certainly his rhetoric and calls for blood atonement help create an atmosphere where such an event could occur. Funny how that works, even nowadays. At this point, Brigham Young declares martial law and Mormons prepare for war. Even briefly toying with the idea of a weapon of mass destruction, Game of Thrones style, I shit you not, a guy named Uriah Brown invented what he called liquid fire, and the plan was to have this stuff piped into the canyons and released on the invading U.S. military. In the end, not much came of this so-called war. Despite Young's boast, as soon as the military showed up, he stepped down and relinquished power to the U.S.-appointed governor. The Mormons lost a lot of their federal power, but still remained in control of the local governments, courts, etc., and the nation at large considered the entire ordeal a joke. Buchanan's blunder, they called it. The troops, under the command of a Colonel Edwin Alexander, had departed Leavenworth, Kansas in mid-July 1857 much later in the season than they should have, considering the slow plodding pace of oxen-drawn wagons and the terrain that they would have to cross. Two months later, in late September, Bridger was guiding the troops through the South Pass in Wyoming and down the Mormon Trail, Salt Lake City bound. With just over 400 miles to go, they could be expected to arrive no later than the end of October. This would not be the case, however. For whatever reason, the expedition halted at Ham's Fork, over 150 miles northeast of the Great Salt Lake. I say whatever reason, but they were beginning to face Mormon resistance. But mostly it was just a bloodless harassment. 
with Porter Rockwell and his legionnaires firing off guns in the air, out of rifle distance, and yelling insults. The less-than-stellar Colonel Alexander called a council, and Jim Bridger proposed an alternate route. They'd turn northwest to the Bear River, take the Oregon Trail to present-day Idaho, and then come to Salt Lake City from the north. This would take twice as long, yet the colonel agreed. I suppose, out of concern with Mormon resistance, I don't know. The troops were soon mired down in a nasty snowstorm. They turned back, and the entire column was stopped for 10 days. At this point, a Colonel Johnston arrived and took over command, but it was too late. Winter had struck with a vengeance, and the army soon suffered more harassment at the hands of Mormons as well as a lack of supplies. All the while, Bridger was busy trying to just keep everybody from freezing and starving to death. Needless to say, the army did not make it to Salt Lake City for many months to come. It was a big waste of money and manpower, and Brigham Young ended up stepping down anyway. I still got to think that old Jim got at least a little satisfaction. Out of seeing Young humbled, though. Hey, real quick, if you're listening to this, then it's a safe bet that you like history, right? And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you enjoy learning about people like Bridger, who didn't conform to societal norms, who stayed true to their inner selves, people who, for lack of a better word, could be considered rebels. Well, boy, howdy, do I have a treat for you. My buddy David Lose has a podcast out right now called To Be a Rebel. To Be a Rebel explores the lives of some of the most iconic and lesser-known rebels from all over the world and throughout time. From political activists like Ida Wells to military leaders like Mulan, and even spiritual and cultural figures like Martin Luther King Jr. and Jimi Hendrix, host David Lose covers it all, keeping true to the historical accuracy while at the same time bringing these stories to life through captivating storytelling and high-quality sound design. Listen, you want to stay home and conform? Fine. You want to sit at home and giggle and listen to comedians talking about chimpanzees? Be my guest. But you want to be a rebel like Jim Bridger? Give to Be a Rebel a listen. Available now wherever you are currently listening to the Wild West extravaganza. To Be a Rebel. This episode is also brought to you by... All right, welcome back. Something interesting occurred while Bridger was out west in 57 guiding for the army. A somewhat minor detail in the man's life that I think is worth mentioning. A slave was sold back in Jim's home in Westport, a transaction from which Jim was credited $420. Now, this happened while he was away, scouting for the army, like I said, but a couple of years prior, when a census recorder came to the Bridger home, there was an enslaved 20-year-old woman living there with two children. In March of 1861, a black woman was treated by a doctor at the Bridger home, possibly the same lady. Also interesting to note that the head of household in that census was a widow woman named Ruth Skaggs. She lived there with her two sons and Bridger's wife and children. I'm not sure how much English, if any, Jim's wife Mary could speak. Got to imagine she felt like a foreigner in a foreign land. And there are several reports of her wanting to return to the Fort Bridger area to be with her own people. Maybe this Ruth lady was there to assist Mary around the house. Maybe she was just a boarder. I don't know. Anyway, the question now posed is whether or not Jim Bridger was indeed a slave owner or if he supported slavery. We know his buddy Vasquez did own slaves for sure. Was the slave that was sold in 1857 someone that Vasquez had sent to the Bridger household to help out in Jim's absence? Uh, Was the selling of the slave just business that Bridger was conducting on behalf of his partner Vasquez, as he had previously done? Or was this just Bridger's slave? Who knows? Okay, okay, take it easy. I'm not making some grand moral judgment or trying to pontificate. 
I do, however, think this is a great example of just how complicated and dirty history can be. Aspects like this can oftentimes be glossed over when discussing our heroes. I mean, personally, I think it's worth pointing out the good, the bad, and the ugly. We don't really associate slavery with the Mountain Man days, but I went down a little wormhole and yeah, surprisingly, there were fur trappers who had slaves working in the Rockies. Different topic for a different day, though. Now, obviously, Bridger would go on to serve the Union Army, albeit on the frontier, during the Civil War. Both his son and son-in-law would also serve the Union during the war, even as their own neighbors fought for the Confederacy. So I don't think Jim was a Southern sympathizer. I also don't think he had any strong feelings one way or the other as far as slavery was concerned. I would venture to say, though, that he was probably a little more open-minded than many, considering that his wives were all Native American, his children mixed, and many of his friends of varying ethnicities, including the former slave Jim Beckworth. In 1859, Bridger was once more hired by the U.S. military, this time to guide an expedition to the headwaters of the Yellowstone and Missouri Rivers, an area that, despite being heavily traveled by mountain men and Native Americans, had not officially been mapped or scientifically explored since Lewis and Clark passed through over five decades prior. They were also under orders to determine the feasibility of wagon roads in the Powder and Bighorn River areas and to map out the territory of the Lakota, Cheyenne, and Arapaho and figure out, quote, the proper routes by which to invade their country and conquer them, end quote. Now, the leader of this expedition, a Captain William F. Reynolds, was often at odds with Bridger, thinking that his maps were better than those in the old trapper's brain. Time and again, Captain Reynolds would propose a route that Jim had to correct him on. Hell, even from the onset, Jim recommended the expedition use mules while the captain insisted on wagons. This, of course, slowed down travel as the terrain was rough and the party had to constantly raise or lower the wagons with ropes or use picks and shovels to make their own roads, something they could have avoided altogether with mules. Jim would return home that winter as news reached him that his third wife, Mary, had passed away. I was unable to determine a cause of death, but she was buried there in their front yard in Westport as the aforementioned widow, Ruth Skaggs, became a caretaker of sorts for the younger children. Jim was 55 years old at the time of his wife's death, and he would not marry again. In the spring of 1860, Bridger rejoined Captain Reynolds, not far from Fort Laramie, and led the way west to the Wind River area, where, once again, Reynolds ignored his scout's advice and damn near got his men froze to death. After more than a few unsuccessful attempts at crossing the divide, Reynolds finally stopped being hard-headed and took Bridger's advice, using what's now known as Union Pass to cross over. Then came the Snake River, which was dangerously swollen due to snowmelt. This obviously not being Bridger's first rodeo, he suggested making a bull boat to cross over with. The captain, in his wisdom, rejected this idea and instead ordered his men to search for a good location to ford a choice that cost the life of one of his corporals who was swept away by the current, his body never to be seen again. Instead of now taking Jim's advice on the bull boat, Reynolds ordered his men to construct a raft, because Reynolds knows best. When the raft was completed, the captain tries to cross the river in it, guided by a rope, and surprise, surprise, he is unsuccessful. Finally, after two days wasted and one soldier dead, Captain Reynolds puts his bruised ego to the side and asks Bridger to pretty please go ahead and make that bull boat. Jim does so, and all of the men are able to cross over without a single issue. Fun little fact, a bull boat is fabricated using a wooden frame or hoop of sticks, oftentimes willow, over which a green buffalo hide is stretched. 
The one Bridger slapped together on this occasion measured 12 and a half feet long by three and a half feet wide, made 17 successful crossings, each passage only taking two minutes. Jim would then lead the men over Teton Pass to Pierre's Hole, and by July 3rd, they had reached Fort Benton without making it to present-day Yellowstone National Park. Ugh. Believe it or not, even in the year of our Lord, 1860, the world at large was still in denial about the wonders of Yellowstone. This fabled area was first described to Lewis and Clark by various tribes, but they themselves did not pass through. However, a few years later, John Coulter Wood did an episode on Old John a long time ago. It's on Patreon, if you're interested. Coulter observed at least one geothermal in the northeastern portion of the park and described it as a place of fire and brimstone. Coulter's hell, as folks took to calling it, was dismissed as just a fish tail. Then came Jim Bridger and numerous other trappers, and they too told stories of what they saw. The boiling mud and steaming rivers, a mountain of glass and petrified trees with petrified birds singing petrified songs. It wasn't until 1869 that the area was formally explored with the Cook, Folsom, and Peterson expeditions. Turns out there were geysers and there were steaming rivers, and while the petrified birds singing petrified songs did not exist, the petrified trees certainly did. Now, to be honest, Bridger and his fellow trappers could tell some whoppers. Jim especially. If he felt like you didn't believe him, he would really start laying it on thick. I'm sure you're probably familiar with some version of the story that Bridger told about being surrounded by a hundred or so Cheyenne warriors, or Lakota, or Blackfeet, or whatever tribe that Jim felt like inserting. He'd tell his spellbound audience that the angry warriors chased him into a box canyon that offered zero chance of escape. And to make matters worse, he was all out of shot for his rifle and completely surrounded. Jim would then pause, a long pause, until someone inevitably would blurt out, And what happened then? To which Bridger, straight-faced, would stoically reply, Well, them engines killed me. Then there was the camping spot that Jim claimed was one of his favorites, right up against a bald, flat face of a mountain. He had the echo of the canyon time to ride at six hours, so just before turning in at night, Bridger would yell out, Time to wake up. And sure enough, six hours later, his own echo would return to work as an alarm clock. And it wasn't just the forest and the birds that were petrified. There was a certain place where Bridger claimed that a crow medicine man had put a curse on everything that crossed it to be petrified. Even gravity. (laughs) As proof, Jim claimed to have ridden his horse over petrified air. The animal, thinking that he could just do this everywhere, tried again on his own to show off to some other horses and fell to his death. Of the ordeal, Bridger allegedly said, quote, He was a good, logical horse. Only thing that he didn't know was that in most places the law of gravity isn't petrified. End quote. So yeah, for your common pilgrim from back east who had a hard time even believing that the Rocky Mountains were as big as reported, these crazy stories coming out of the mouths of these wild, long-haired mountain men was just a bridge too far. Before the Reynolds expedition was complete, Bridger interceded in two would-be fights with the indigenous, both times calming hot tempers and avoiding bloodshed, just a pattern that continuously repeats itself. The dude just knew how to talk to the natives. In the spring of 1861, Jim went to Denver and met up with his longtime buddy, Jim Beckwith, with the idea of getting together a group of old trappers to go hunting gold. I mean, hell, they ought to have known more than anyone else where the likely deposits were. Only reason they hadn't prospected before, according to Jim, was that in the old days, quote, beaver was the best paying gold they was. 
First, though, the coach and mail service hired Jim to lay out a direct stage route from Denver west through the Rockies, which he did. The new road cut more than 200 miles off the overland route, but it never materialized. And as far as I know, he and Beckworth never did go panning for gold. Turns out there were more pressing matters at hand, and Bridger and Beckworth weren't the only ones with prospecting in mind. Gold would soon be discovered along Grasshopper Creek in southwestern Montana. Boomtown of Bannock sprung up quickly as hopefuls flooded the area, looking to strike it rich. Likewise, about 80 miles west, where gold was struck at Alder Gulch, resulting in another boomtown called Virginia City. It was like the California gold rush all over again, only this time the would-be miners were crossing rot through the middle of Sioux territory in order to get to the diggings. As I'm sure you can guess, the Lakota weren't too happy about these developments. They and their allies struck back hard closing down the new trail and causing the army to send in Brigadier General Patrick Connor with orders to, quote, make vigorous war upon the Indians and punish them so that they will be forced to keep the peace. End of quote. And guess who the United States Army would call upon to guide such an operation? I'll give you a hint. Starts with a J and rhymes with M. Bridger. But would he be up to the task? I mean, hell, the man was nearing 60 years of age at this point. Would the army be successful in protecting the prospectors? And just who was this William J. Fetterman guy anyway? All that and more next week as we wrap up this dive into the life and times of the great Jim Bridger. Sorry to cut this episode shorter than the previous few, but just knowing what's ahead, I felt like this was an appropriate stopping point. Like I said, the next and final installment will be available bright and early next Wednesday morning, but it is already on Patreon if you would like to check it out patreon.com forward slash wild west extra i got a lot of extra content on patreon by the way if you're a new listener we've already covered bass reeves tom horn deacon jim miller john wesley harden the death of butch cassidy and the mystery surrounding it i did an episode on the glanton gang the very real gang that inspired cormac mccarthy's blood meridian i interviewed my man william sanderson also known as eb farnham from hbo's deadwood Got another interview with Butch Cassidy expert Dan Buck, and a whole lot more, including an entire series on Kit Carson. I will warn you, though, before you go shelling out that hard-earned dough, probably shouldn't say this, but I'm not going to lie to you. The stuff on Patreon is not all that great, in my opinion. Uh, I will be the first to admit that this podcast got off to a very rough start, both quality and content-wise. So if you are new, you may find the Patreon stuff a lot different, at least the old stuff. That said, I believe everything I've ever recorded is on there, even the most recent episodes. And they are all advertisement-free. Going forward, anytime I do a series like this, Patreon will get the entire kit and caboodle all at once, sort of like when a series hits Netflix. No more waiting week after week for the next episode, you can just binge it. I don't like advertisements either, but Daddy's trying to get off that forklift. You feel? Okay, enough about all that. Thank you so much for listening. WildWestExtra.com is the website. WildWestJosh.substack.com is the newsletter. Please subscribe or follow wherever you listen, and I will see you next week. Adios.
get your bump and grind on.